Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of At War, the podcast by the Conflict Law Center. Today we are delighted to have with us Antonio Zanakopoulos, who is Associate Professor of Public International Law at the University of Oxford and also a Fellow of St. Anne's College. He is the Secretary General of the International Law Association and a door tenant of Three Stone Chambers in Lincoln's Inn. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to be talking about extraterritorial unilateral uh, restrictive measures, <laughs> which is a long name, I think, for sanctions. So traditional sanctions in the international legal order were reprisals or countermeasures, as we now call them, or war. Um, but now we now see cases where countermeasures not only affect the responsible state, but also third states and corporations who are not alleged to have violated any international law. So first, for the benefit of our listeners, could you briefly explain sanctions, how they work, and both in terms of traditional sanctions and extraterritorial sanctions? Yeah, so let me uh, try and do that uh, without taking too much time. But as you as you rightly said, so like in the in very traditional so pre-World War, let's say pre-UN Charter um, international law, um, the, the, the sanctions for violating international law were reprisals and war, as you correctly said. Yeah. So, so the idea of a sanction as a term is precisely a consequence um, of the violation, right? Uh, if um, uh, in a decentralized legal order, in a legal order where we have no centralized organs, which we don't in international law, we still don't um, to a very large extent, and it is left to states themselves to enforce the law um, via um, essentially reactions to illegality, right? So the states themselves react to illegal acts. And in the past, um, as you said, that would be mainly either going to war against the offender um, or who they thought was the offender, um, or um, going, um, uh, going for reprisal, so taking sort of this counteraction. Now, obviously, the UN Charter um, changed this uh, structure quite a bit because it did two main things. The one is it removed war um, as, as a sanction because now war is supposed to be completely centralized to the Security Council, yeah. which is the authorization of the Security Council. Um, it left countermeasures in place, it left um, sort of unilateral measures in place, while at the same time uh, introducing collective measures. Um, under uh, Article 41 of the UN Charter. So if we're going to use the term sanctions, we can roughly say we have collective sanctions, um, which are taken by um, the United Nations, by the Security Council, when there's a threat to the peace, breach of the peace, and so on and so forth. Um, and these measures are incumbent on all states that are members of the UN, so they have to be taken, and they tend to be quite effective and sometimes devastating, as we have seen in the cases of Iraq yeah. or Iran before the JCPOA. Um, the, the nuclear deal, as it's sometimes called. So they can be quite quite devastating measures because they all states have to um, implement them. But at the same time, the UN Charter did allow um, the parallel existence of unilateral measures. Um, and this makes sense because there's no other way to enforce international law in a decentralized system. So to put it simply, if state A violates the law towards state B, then state B can react by violating the law towards state A and yeah. state A complies. Where, the, where it becomes really difficult, and perhaps this is the last point sort of like in, in this introductory uh, discussion, is the following. You talked about extraterritoriality. Where does this come in? Where it comes in as follows. Um, of course, the whole system works pretty well and sort of um, uh, 
is comprehensible when we're talking oh state A violated a treaty obligation towards state B and then state B violates an, another obligation uh, towards state A until state A complies. The problem is what happens when state A violates um, an ERDA owners obligation or some sort of um, obligation that is owed to the international community as a whole. It's a very serious violation and you don't have access to the United Nations for whatever reason. So to take um, an obvious recent example, right? Russia uses force against Ukraine. That's a violation of Hughes-Coggins. There is um, a, 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 the provision of the use of force is of course also an obligation owed to the international community as a whole. So of course Ukraine can react, and it does. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, all other states in the world can react um, uh, to that violation. Um, but they can't use the United Nations for this because obviously Russia is. Um, a, a permanent member of the Security Council. So they have to go for unilateral measures. Mm -hmm. But the unilateral measures that they will take will never be nearly as effective as the collective measures um, taken by the United Nations would have been. It is in those circumstances, I mean, not only in those circumstances, but you can see clearly in those circumstances, where states taking such unilateral action are trying to um, assert the extraterritoriality of the applicability of, of those measures in order to force states that are not reacting um, to comply with the measures. So in a way they are trying to use um, this, this assertion of jurisdiction beyond, beyond the territory in, a, in an attempt to emulate what they would have achieved through the United Nations, but they can't. And that can yeah. be more or less controversial, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting to look at this from a Global South perspective, um, and especially in an era of great power relations. We've been told we shouldn't use great power competition, it should be great power relations, so we're, we're going with that. Um, especially, I was very recently reading Chinese statements on international law, and they um, are getting more and more aggressive in the sense of how much they're pushing back against the US especially, and mainly in the era of sanctions and in that area, because they are saying that they violate a state sovereignty, they're illegal under international law. So um, the UN Charter and the Law and State Responsibility, it does allow for proportionate countermeasures. So in what circumstances are these, do these become illegal? And it, is the argument tenable that they do violate a state sovereignty? So, I mean, yeah, arguing that it violates state sovereignty sort of like writ large is a little bit fuzzy. It's not easy to, mm -hmm. to because, you know, if you use terms like sovereignty, yes. I mean, yeah. what does it really mean? Um, and you're absolutely right that China is pushing back. Um, and I slip on one other sort of like very recent development is that um, China has legislated now um, uh, to stop secondary sanctions or what we call secondary right. boycotts by adopting. Um, what um, what we would call a blocking statute, which is something that the EU also has done yes, and so on. Yeah. So that is an example of, of China pushing back, and you're absolutely right. Now the thing with the thing with sanctions is that we, we tend to uh, we tend to sort of like um, gravitate towards the extremes by either saying no, no, all sanctions are absolutely fine, there's no issue, mm -hmm. um, or saying all sanctions that do not go through the Security Council um, are, are are unlawful and and. Uh, um, and should be treated as unlawful. And you can, you can, I mean, to, to use these terms, sort of like the northern perspective is, yeah. you know, we can always take sanctions, there's no problem. Yeah. yeah. Uh, absolutely fine. And then the southern perspective sort of tends to try to be at the, at the complete opposite side of the spectrum by saying no sanctions, mm -hmm. no unilateral sanctions, nothing outside. 
the UN Charter because the violence over and all that stuff. But you give the answer yourself. The answer, I think, lies really on the fact that, uh, in principle, you have to admit sanctions, in at least in the form of countermeasures. Well, there are two forms, right? People call them sanctions. Uh, you can have different types of measures. There are measures that are inherently lawful, even yeah. if they are unfriendly. So yeah. these do not need any legal justification. Mm -hmm. I mean, a simple example that I always give is breaking diplomatic relations. Yeah. yeah, There is no obligation to maintain diplomatic relations with any state. So when the first thing you hear when something happens is, um, oh, so-and-so uh, told uh, the, the, the ambassador of the other state to leave the territory, um, or they broke off diplomatic relations with that other state, that's I mean, people might see it as a sanction. It's a method of putting pressure, it's a method of signaling displeasure, but it's not unlawful per se. So you don't need to justify it. You can do it whenever you want. Yeah. Um, the, when we're talking about something that is in the first instance unlawful, so something that, why am I saying this? Because there may be situations, we have the Nicaragua judgment, um, uh, in, the, in the book cases behind us, and uh, the ICJ said in Nicaragua very clearly that in general international law and custom, there's no obligation of any state to maintain trade relations with any other state. Yeah. So if you want to break off trade relations, of course, that's going to put pressure on the other state, right? But at the same time, there's no general obligation in international law to have mm -hmm. such trade relations. So this is not a countermeasure. This is, at best, a, re a measure of retortion, right? Yeah. If we go to countermeasures, that means, in the first instance, your action is unlawful. So you need some basis on which to justify it, and countermeasures can be that basis. In order to successfully justify an otherwise unlawful measure, so for example, the freezing of assets of the central bank, right? If somebody goes and freezes the, let's say, I don't know, Switzerland, uh, there are assets of the of the of the Pakistani Central Bank in Switzerland, which I think they're really kept there. Um, and Switzerland all of a sudden wakes up one morning and decides to freeze um, the assets that are held in Switzerland to the Pakistani Central Bank. That's in violation of immunity. You can't do it. So you have to have some sort of justification for why you're freezing um, those those central bank assets. Um, and there, you would have to resort to saying, "Oh, Pakistan has violated." Ex norm of international law, let's say Switzerland, and this is why I'm doing it. Okay, but there are still conditions. You, you have more conditions than this. You refer to one of them, um, which is proportionality. Yeah. So it must be proportionate to the injury suffered. Um, it, the, the, the conditions are also that the measures need to be reversible, which brings up this whole debate about whether you can finally confiscate Russian assets um, and sort of pass them over to Ukraine right. as compensation. Yeah. Which is a really problematic area because that doesn't sound reversible at all, right? Yeah. Um, and there are also a number of other norms of international law that you cannot violate by countermeasures. For example, you can't use force, that would be a forceful countermeasures yeah. prohibited. Human uh, um, countermeasures that violate human rights might be an issue. So it's a, it's a very complicated field of study. Yeah, and I think your example is very interesting because the US did that to Afghanistan when the Taliban came into power. It froze their assets there and Biden was like, I'm going to give this all to 9-11 victims. Never mind that the 9-11 fund with ICRC was so over, um, people had donated so much at the time that they were like, we have to spend this on other emergencies because there's not enough survivor, like families of survivors to give this to. Um, and doing that on the basis. So, it is purely subjective, your interpretation of when there has been an international 
Um, you're, you're being the state. Well, that, so that is again a very, very fundamental aspect of international law with which many, many people get very, very confused. Yeah. Um, let me put it this way, so going back to all the arbitral decisions. We are in a decentralized system. Um, the fundamental characteristic of a decentralized system, or one of the fundamental characteristics, is that there is no um, obligatory third-party determination. So yeah. it's not like in domestic um, uh, uh, in the domestic legal order, where in the final analysis we can always go to a court, you know, you and I might disagree on the law or the facts, that's fine, that means we have a dispute. Um, your position is as valid as mine, theoretically, right? If, if you say, oh, Antonio owes me money and I, and I say, no, I don't, I mean, mm. okay, uh, both of us have the right to maintain our position. Yeah. We are in a dispute. We disagree over facts or law. In the final analysis, we can go to a court and the court will decide which one, which one of us is, is right or wrong. And we can't avoid that in the final instance because we're both obligated to go before the court, right? Because we've agreed at the outset that we'll go there. In international law, there's no compulsory jurisdiction. Yeah. States must agree specifically to go before a court and they do so in certain circumstances, but they don't in others. That means, in the first instance, every state determines for itself the legal position of both itself and everybody else. So, uh, in that sense, it can be subjected. Yeah. At the same time, it does so at its own risk. So that means it takes the risk that when later on the dispute is settled, and it can be settled not only by a court, but it can be settled by agreement, you know, through the passage of time, sort of uh, opinions coalescent, and get to a particular point, in that case, it may be found to have acted in the wrong, mm -hmm. and there it will be a serious, okay. uh, a serious problem with serious repercussions. But in a way, it acts sort of like um, um, the, the time, mm -hmm. it's the time frame that confuses us quite a lot. Okay. It's as if in domestic law we work on um, sort of like human time, mm -hmm. but when we're talking about international law, we're talking geological or astronomical time. Okay. Things take much, much longer to coalesce. Yeah. I mean, yeah. think about Iraq 2003, yeah. and think about how this was treated in 2003, mm -hmm. and how this is treated today, 20 years down the line, yeah. right? Where the position has completely changed. Yeah. The consequences have been forthcoming for yeah. the states that acted in that, yeah. in that area. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's interesting to note the, uh, the difference between adjudication because when the oil platform's case was decided in 2003, so they had the Iraq oil going on behind them, maybe that's why the decision was so anti the US, perhaps. Um, well, I mean, political considerations always come um, into um, yeah. the determination yeah. of the law. There is, there is, I mean, in the final analysis, right? Um, and sorry for being perhaps a little bit too subjective, but the other way to think about this is that every legal rule admits a number of plausible interpretations. Mm -hmm. um, and which one of the plausible interpretations will be the, the, the one that you select, whether it is you or a court or anybody else, will be sort of, in a way, uh, overdetermined by uh, your political, economic and other sort of biases and considerations. There is no other way. That's yeah, why. And I'm glad you said that because sometimes I think that we like to operate as if there's a black letter law and that's all it says and that there's only one way of interpreting it and that you're either a positivist or you're not. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I, I mean, there's, a, there's a way of being a positivist as well. I agree with you and I think that's, that gives a bad name to positivists because I don't think positivists really believe. I mean, there is, um, 
I, I tend to consider myself a positivist in the sense that I try to figure out the, the positive law, but I'm not an archaeologist of law that says yeah. there is one true meaning of the law and we must right. dig down yeah. and sort of find it, and that is the one true meaning for anyone and forever, right? Yeah. This does, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I remember Egil Talk had a, or Egil Talker in New York had a symposium on critical approaches to international law, and every everyone writing on critical approaches you know, down trail or whatever. Um, at every, at the beginning of every, almost every article I was reading, they came out as positivists. And I was like, that's great, because <laughs> uh, that's the whole point of, this, of saying this is the new positivism. Well, in a way, I mean, this has taken that, us yeah, down sorry. sort of like <laughs> yeah. the jurisprudential avenue, but I'll tell you this, which is something that I think is true. It's like one of the, you know, what is the, the you know, one of the most renowned positivists, or one of the most renowned positivists being Hans Kelsen, is quintessentially um, um, a person who um, uh, took a very critical uh, um, um, a jurisprudential position by speaking about the indeterminacy of law and the role of interpretation and sort of like the radius of plausible interpretations for every rule and the fact that um, the decision by a judge that one of the plausible interpretations becomes the authoritative interpretation mm -hmm. in the specific case is actually a political decision. Yes, so, yeah. uh, in a way, I think there is, uh, there is a misunderstanding sort of between um, a, a positivists and critical legal theorists because yeah. I think quite a lot of the positivists are in the critical legal theory camp when it comes to indeterminacy of law and sort of subjectivity yeah. and all that stuff. And at the same time, I think quite a lot of the critical legal scholars need positivists because they, you, you need to be able to criticize the positive law, right? Yes, Otherwise, yeah. why are you criticizing it? And I also think that it means that you get your foot in the door. So people take you seriously because you're like, no, I do know the law. I know what it is. And that's also the basis on which I'm critiquing it. You're absolutely yeah. right. And to, to criticize something, it's best if you actually know what you're yeah, criticizing. Yeah, you Otherwise, you have a way <laughs> inside out. And I think also the, um, I know that we've sidetracked way too, but I also think that that's the issue in terms of um, there are so many international court pronouncements where they decide what is custom. And international tribunals especially, they will be like, yes, so this is custom. I'm like, where? From where? Um, but when you are looking at it in the sense of state silence, it goes back to the lack of capacity of the global south. Because there are so many things happening that the global south is not able to respond to. And then it becomes law and you're like, oh wait, we should have objected to this way back when, especially when it comes to unable and unwilling. Because thank God for Latin American states coming out and being like, actually, we do not agree with this doctrine. You can't go and take out non-state actors under Article 51. We don't agree with it. Anticipate yourself that's, again, not written into the text. We don't agree with it. Um, but that enlargement happens because people go to you know conferences or they write papers, and it's all, uh, I mean, the, the Americans took 3,000 judge advocate generals into Iraq for a reason. And it's because you're you're making law as you're reaching it, and <laughs> that's what they're doing. Um, and so and so when state silence is looked upon as kind of acquiescence in some way, or you know the global south hasn't spoken out, so this is not the law. Uh, that always really comes down to the issues of capacity here. Uh, and we were talking to you about how twenty international lawyers here, yeah. have, you know, created them what you have as a state. Um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't work well. And that. But that also highlights, so look, the system is actually 
um, uh, let's just say, skewed in favor of the powerful ones. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it, there's no point hiding it, yeah. um, uh, uh, trying to hide this. So, so fundamentally, the system of customary international law um, does not favor um, the global south precisely for reasons of lack of capacity yeah. and so on and so forth. I mean, it's not a huge discussion, and I don't, um, uh, and it wouldn't make sense to go into it, to into it, into it now. But it, but it would. Uh, makes sense would be to highlight sort of the importance of cooperation and sort of pooling resources mm -hmm. so that um, certain changes in the law can be resisted. And I think that they have been so. Why good changes in the law have been resisted by, let's say, um, the North um, uh, pooling uh, pooling resources together? There are quite a few changes in the law that have been resisted by the South pooling resources together, which right. I think is good. Right. For example, I don't think the unwilling or unable doctrine has made it into the law. This is in large okay. part precisely because just like humanitarian intervention, yes. was shut yeah. down essentially mm -hmm. by, um, by the non-aligned movement and the, yeah, and, the, right. and the very, very strong reaction of the non-aligned movement to, to the changes of these, of these rules of the use of force, which in the final analysis are very important for, um, for the southern states because they are they are not mm -hmm. usually the ones who are going around using force, yeah, um, yeah. especially at a global scale. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, which I think is really interesting, is this um, sort of megaphone effect that Western scholars tend to have by, um, you know, um, uh, where, where, where you have a situation where somebody pitches a doctrine, where particular states want to pitch a doctrine, and then you have four or five people writing yeah. in four or five major journals and being in a, in, in a discussion with one another, while we disregard the fact that 95% of the world has actually either come come, uh, come up against this or um, is silent for lack of resources, yeah. but is definitely not one that is embracing that theory. Um, and, and and that's something that we need to be very, very careful about. But it has, you know, it's um, if you say something um, enough in the American Journal, yeah. in the European Journal, it may end up being considered as, as the law, and then you have a, a very uphill battle in trying to con convince people that there is no such thing exactly. as humanitarian intervention, yeah. there, yeah. there is no such thing as unwilling and unable doctrine, yeah. um, in the sense that it's really not accepted by the vast majority of the states. Yeah, world. yeah, exactly. And it's, it, it, again, it is a much more uphill battle to, to say something isn't the law, but it's been said so many times that it is. And I think even, um, Returning to the sanctions point, I think that's why great power relations, to use that term again, uh, are so important now because you're seeing, um, from the perspective of uh, a lot of states, the idea was to bleed Russia dry in Ukraine in the sense of having it, you know, it's Afghanistan and just running out the time, but not actually going into help Ukraine. But also that the sanctions that you impose on Russia would be so great that they wouldn't be able to. Um, continue with the armed conflict, and that has just not happened. Uh, and Russia has been able to sell its oil to the, you know, India and the UAE, which are buying it, and it's been able to withstand sanctions. And other countries like Saudi Arabia are watching this, and are watching the sanctions based on it with a large amount of concern, which is why then you had the Saudi-Iran detente brokered by China. So the notion that you have, you, you're, you're seeing a change in when it was um, states which were kind of uh, left out in the cold and were less powerful, sanctions worked, kind of, around Iran, around Venezuela. They haven't worked when it comes to Russia. So in the sense of 
estates looking at that and being less scared of sanctions and being less punitive, less uh, less important, but also the fact that you can't have collective sanctions because of the SE deadlock. Uh, so where to go from there? And will we see more blocking statutes? That is five questions in one answer. Yeah, that's a lot. So let's, let's try and tackle them uh, one by one. So let's first of all talk about the effectiveness of sanctions. And mm. the effectiveness of sanctions um, uh, varies greatly. Um, both depending on whether we're talking about collective or unilateral sanctions, um, but uh, it, so collective sanctions tend to be always far, far more right. um, uh, effective than, than unilateral sanctions. Um, that's the first point. The second point is, of course, it varies with respect to the target, mm -hmm. right? It's a different thing if you're targeting um, Iran or Iraq, and it's a different thing if you're targeting Russia. Um, yeah. uh, the, because obviously, um, it's a state of vast resources, vast territory, and so on and so forth. The third thing is, we may talk about unilateral sanctions, but there is a point about having those unilateral sanctions um, uh, effectively coordinated, um, which, uh, which you can do and which would need um, some sort of broad consensus within the international community. But if you don't work to build that consensus, yeah. um, and then you have um, you don't get India on board, you don't get China on board, you don't get, you don't try to get those, those uh, sort of like major powers uh, yeah. in this day and age um, on board, um, then your sanctions will necessarily not be as effective as they would have been, even if you manage to get um, coordination between, um, let's say, the US, the UK, and the EU, and um, what have you, Australia and New Zealand, right. and so on and so forth. Um, the, the, second, the second thing is, so that's with respect to effectiveness. So effectiveness will always vary depending on the target, depending on the on the agreement. And there are ways to deal with that, right? There are there are ways to, to sort of like um, achieve better effectiveness of sanctions by using sanctions that are better targeted, so that they don't strike the civilian population, they don't yeah. but they strike the government of the state whose conduct you're trying to change, and so on and so forth. But um, also having some sort of coordinated action. And it has been, we have seen situations where without sort of binding Security Council decisions, um, the, the international community has acted in unison in taking, in, in reacting uh, okay. to, to certain violations. Um, collective non-recognition, for example, okay. of uh, illegal states is, a, is an example where we have something like a centrally uh, coordinated unilateral reaction, right? Because there is no collective reaction on the, on the part of the UN. There's yeah. recommendations on the part of the UN, but every state reacts for itself. So, so that would be um, one issue. The other thing is to remember that sanctions are meant not to be punitive. Mm -hmm. The idea is not to punish mm -hmm. uh, Russia or to punish Iran, or, but also you can't punish a fictional entity, a state's yeah, a fictional yeah. entity, right? It exists in our minds because the law puts it there, mm. right? It's, that's the, the essence of a legal person. You can't punish a legal person mm. that doesn't have, you know, a mind of its own yeah. and so on and so forth. So the idea of sanctions is to induce compliance. The whole point about sanctions is not to be the dry, to punish them for something, mm. but it is to make the cost uh, higher than the benefit, yeah. to, induce to induce a change um, in their behavior. But of course, if there are ways out with unilateral sanctions that are uncoordinated or not coordinated as they should be, uh, there are always way out, ways out. That means there will be less inducements to comply, right? 
Um, and then there was a a third slash fifth question which I have not forgotten. It is interesting about the uh, the fact that you can't publish a legal entity um, because sanctions, especially the way they were done in Iraq, uh, especially in some ways the way they were done to Iran, um, they do act as a form of collective punishment. And it, it's strange because Americans, uh, every time I meet an American in Pakistan, they will always be like, oh, but you don't hate our government, right? You, like, you hate our government, but you don't hate us, right? And I'm like, you guys have collectively punished people since the Treaty of Versailles. So, like, you know, I don't know if I have that much. Um, and the notion of you don't, you can't have a criminal state, and the closest we've come is Nazi Germany or Saddam's uh, yeah. Iraq, which invaded Kuwait. Um, but the, so the, uh, I remember reading that the compensation commission set up for the environmental damage that Iraq did in Kuwait, they've still not paid it off. And this is now 30 years later. So what is that if it's not punitive and what is that if it's not collective punishment? Well, I mean, if it, that's the, the point though, that is precisely if it ends up being punitive, it is unlawful. Right. Right? Okay. So that is, yeah. the, that is the general idea. Yeah. And that is why, you remember we were talking about countermeasures earlier and we were saying conditions for yeah. the countermeasures to be lawful. And part of the condition, um, and, and it relates to this concept of proportionality, yeah. is precisely not uh, to make sure that the measures are not punitive, to make sure that the measures, they are coercive, right? They are not, something is happening to you that you don't want yeah. to happen to you, right, as a state. So they are coercive in that way. They aim to induce you to change your, your ways, but they can't be punitive. The idea cannot be to sort of like, punish you or wipe you off the face of the earth or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, but that's why we've had such great evolution of sanctions. I don't want to take you all the way back but if, um, to um, even the evolution of UN sanctions. If you think about the UN, about UN sanctions, sort of like in the first instance, I mean, after uh, the end of the Cold War, because between 1945 and 1990, we had almost nothing. When we had sort of limited sanctions to right. South Africa and Southern Rhodesia. Yeah. So the first comprehensive UN sanctions regime was against Iraq in 1991, um, and that was an absolutely devastating sanctions regime. It, it, it literally threatened to wipe Iraq off the map, and especially the civilian population. Now, there were reactions to this precisely because it was seen as going beyond yeah. um, the dealing with the threat of the peace, beyond inducing um, a change in the behavior of the state and going towards punishment. And that's why sanctions have developed so much um, after that, where we've seen sort of a reluctance by the Security Council to go into further comprehensive um, economic regimes, so it doesn't impose a, a comprehensive economic embargo anymore, um, an attempt to target sanctions more specifically to particular, um, either to particular goods that fuel a conflict or to particular individuals that are um, running the state or are responsible for the conflict. Um, and, and so this attempt to target, we've seen humanitarian exemptions and so on and so forth. And if you look at unilateral sanctions, they largely emulate mm -hmm. um, uh, this type of development That's of UN sanctions. Right. Okay. Um, and the point is precisely to sort of try and say, you know, even if it is the US or the EU now um, taking measures against Russia, they will say, well, but we are targeting specific Russian individuals that are supporting the war effort in Ukraine, uh, particular um, uh, uh, banks or um, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, munition producers or 
what have you, so the particular parts of the industry um, that are fueling the war, the war in Ukraine, but we're not sort of, or we're not supposed to um, in any way blanket punish uh, the Russian people um, uh, in that sense. It becomes a little bit more problematic when this includes travel restrictions and all the rest, yeah, which are yeah. sort of, again, they can be targeted by, but um, they end up sort of like being globalized because we think about the fact that um, all of a sudden all, all flights to, to, to Russia from, from, yeah, from, yeah. from Europe have collapsed. I mean, this is in a way it can, uh, it can, it can constitute a de facto uh, sort yeah. of like travel ban. This becomes more complicated then, right? Yeah, and then we and it's not meant to from coming to Wimbledon. Yeah. <laughs> well, God forbid that he should lose his Wimbledon participation rights. Um, because we are running short of time, sure. but just as a final question I wanted to ask, how do you see this trend going forward in the sense of, you've already mentioned the EU blocking statute in the sense that they said, you know, in that the entities listed in the annex, you have to disobey US sanctions in this. Um, do you think that we're going to see more of those going forward, or do you think we're going to see more sanctions? I mean, the problem with the... Look, I mean, it's great ebbs and flows, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, in a way, what happens is, um, from 1945 to 1990, sort of, we had this, this paradigmatic shift with the, with the emergency of the Charter, and yet we stayed um, in that unilateralist paradigm precisely because the Security Council couldn't work for 45 years. And after that, you could say we had almost 20 years, um, or, uh, or even 30 years, but probably almost 20 years, where we've had some collective operation, uh, collective reaction, um, on, uh, with the Security Council operating, uh, at least in the way that it was operating for those years. And now we're, uh, we're looking at another um, uh, uh, another change, sort of like going back to the Security Council being to some extent sidelined, mm -hmm. at least for certain major conflicts, um, even though it's still in play for other conflicts, um, and, unilater uh, and uh, unilateralism sort of coming, or coordinated unilateralism sort of coming back into play. So I think it generally will go with these ebbs and flows as, um, so there will be a time when the Security Council will come back into the fray. Okay. Um, uh, in, uh, in, in situations where there, there is going to be sort of further consensus. Now, with respect to, to blocking statutes, blocking statutes are very um, they're interesting as a statement of position. Um, basically, just to explain very quickly, a blocking statute is a way to react to um, a, 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 a sanction by another state that uh, that contains an exorbitant assertion of jurisdiction. So, for example, to put it very simply, let's take the U.S. embargo against Cuba. Um, the U.S. saying something like, um, obviously the U.S. can regulate the conduct of uh, U.S. nationals, and obviously the U.S. can regulate the conduct of anyone within U.S. territory. So it can say, any U.S. national, no U.S. national can trade with Cuba, no entity um, in uh, the U.S. territory can trade with Cuba. They can do that. Now, whether that's lawful or not in terms of international, we can discuss it. There's no obligation to trade as the ICJ says in Nicaragua, okay. then they're fine to do, they can do that. Okay. Yeah. What they cannot do is they cannot say um, Pakistani nationals right. in Pakistan cannot trade with Cuba because if they trade with Cuba, I will then block 
there, um, I mean, they can say I will block their access to the US market. That's already problematic because you have no right of access to a market. But then okay. if they say I will impose penalties, so it could be a recursion, but if they say I will impose penalties or I will um, uh, uh, somehow sort of um, take other measures against sort of like a Pakistani national or Pakistani corporation that has no connection with the United sort of like not, um, uh, not process the payments in dollars through clearing mechanisms and so on and so forth. Okay. That can be really problematic, yeah. right? So that is what we call a secondary sanction or a secondary boycott. Right. A blocking statute is a reaction to that secondary sanction or, um, or boycott where Pakistan would issue a law that says, I prohibit Pakistani nationals from complying with the US measures, because those US measures, I mean, think of, think of yourself as a Pakistani bank. Mm -hmm. um, Pakistani law allows you to do business with Cuba or a yeah. Pakistani corporation. Pakistani law allows you to do business with Cuba, right? You want to do business with Cuba, but then you know that if you do so, you might face problems in operations in the United States or might face problems with uh, sort of like uh, clearing uh, in dollars and so on and so forth. So even though you're not obligated to comply with that, with that US law, you comply with it voluntarily out of fear of what will happen to you. This yeah. is the so-called chilling effect. Yeah. Now, when Pakistan sees this, when China sees this, when the EU sees this, the EU has blocking statutes, mm -hmm. right, um, against the Americans. Right. Let's not forget that it was the EU that first broke blocking statutes against the Americans okay. um, yeah. in situations like this. Um, the blocking statute is to, is to say to you, let's say the Pakistani blocking statute, would mm -hmm. then say, you may not comply with this American law, because okay. if you do, I will sanction you as Pakistan, as I have the right to do. Right. So you are obligated. Now, the problem with this, this is a very important statement, let's say, on the part of Pakistan or China, because they're saying this measure that the Americans are taking mm -hmm. is an exorbitant assertion of jurisdictions, an unlawful measure. Yeah. It shouldn't be uh, affecting my, my corporations, my nationals in this way. And I pass this blocking statute to protect them. Yeah. Except it's not really protecting you, it's protecting the state, right. but it's hurting you as the Pakistani okay. corporation because you're now between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. comply with the American sanction, Pakistan will sanction you. Yeah. If you don't comply with the American sanction, then right, right, the right. United States is going to sanction you. So it's a little okay. bit of biting your nose to spite your face. Yeah. But it is um, but it is a measure that is there in the final analysis mm -hmm. to sort of bring everything to combination because yeah. that, that's the idea. The idea is corporations, the, the, the people who are affected um, uh, will suffer for a while, but uh, a, a secondary boycott mm -hmm. faced with a blocking statute effectively will create a, a situation that is irresolvable and the two states will have to sit down and figure well, a way that's out. that's very interesting. And I, I guess the EU is a powerful enough entity to do that for the US. Yeah, so, I, so this has been, I mean, Yes, and, and it is sort of like a battle that has gone on for, for a very long time, even sort of like before the fall of the Soviet Union with certain, okay. uh, um, uh, with certain measures that the United States was taking against the Soviet Union and sort of like trying to prohibit European companies to um, sell technology that they have to somehow relate to the United States to the Soviet Union and so on and so forth. So it's been going on for a very long time. Right, right. Um, and the really interesting thing is that China, which is Quite powerful, I think. Is it Chinese idea. companies in the annex? So, uh, so uh, not to my knowledge okay. yet, okay. but uh, China is anticipating the possibility. I mean, we have to check. There probably will be. Um, right, right. Um, but China is sort of like anticipating 
um, uh, th this type of, of conduct and they have introduced a glock and they haven't used it yet. Ah, okay, right? Okay. But it is in the books, right? right? And so that's already a very yeah, clear statement yeah. of position by China that it doesn't consider secondary sanctions as something that is allowed in international yeah. law, which I think they're right. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is that they are willing to push this um, to some sort of combination point where we really, uh, you know, at some point, you know, the escalation reaches a level right. yeah. where it has to yeah. be resolved or, um, or somebody has to backtrack. Okay, that's super interesting, especially because I've been looking at it in the context of Gulf states, which have interacted with Huawei mm. and, you know, told the uh, U.S. to get lost, because then the U.S. has said, I'm not going to supply you with arms, they're like, fine, we'll get it from the French, it doesn't matter. Uh, so they're using that, especially with uh, Chinese technology companies. Yeah, so... Um, yeah. So this, I mean, this again brings up another interesting issue for which we probably need another, yeah, another, yeah. another whole podcast. And which is standing over there being like, please. <laughs> which is the concept of, of coercion, right? Of non-intervention yeah, yeah, and so on and so yeah. forth. But perhaps we save that for, uh, yes. for our next visit yes, to Islamabad. Next time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here today. And we hope you enjoyed this episode at home. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>